This is what Brooklyn sounds like. And welcome to another Sunday in Brooklyn. You are listening to Objection to the Rule live on Radio Free Brooklyn. Uh, I am in the studio today. My name is Emily. Uh, I'm here with Matt. Bonjour. <laughs> oh, that was dumb. Hello. <laughs> I don't, don't speak any French. You're always here, Matt, to try something new out, which is I appreciate. Um, Zoe, or hey. one of our newest contributors. Hey, Emily. Hi, Zoe. Um, and then Jasmine is also here, but she'll she will actually physically be here within the next thirty seconds. Um, so how's everybody doing? I know. Um, I know I'm doing okay. I have a weird itchy nose situation. <laughs> Apologies in advance. Uh, how y'all doing? Pretty good. Everything's going pretty. Pretty all right. Um, the A train is under repair, so that's mm. that's a blast. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, cool. I'm good. The L train is also <laughs> under repair, so that's oh, also a blast. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. We can kick off with our, uh, let's, let's talk about Metro Transit. <laughs> let's just complain about the subway <laughs> for this entire show. Nothing more in New York than talking about the subway, unless it's maybe the weather. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so Matt, I know you had uh, something you wanted to bring up at the top of the show, and I'm all ears. I did, I did. Okay, so this morning, I, I, I went, I took to the streets of Brooklyn <laughs> I was out, I was on the hunt uh, for some pigeons. You were hunting pigeons. Hunting pigeons. <laughs> I, I I I recently interviewed this guy who hunts. Um, he kills invasive species and he eats them. And so he has this theory about fighting, about improving the the meat industry by having people eat the animals that are uh, detrimental to the ecosystem. So a lot of weird fish. Um, Wait, the the scary monster fish from a few weeks. Yeah, ago. what was they called? The, the hook tooth. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my god. So pythons in the Everglades? <laughs> yeah. No, that was a thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He was trying to figure out how the best way to cook that because I guess oh. you'd think like some group of people would know how to cook it very well, but yeah. it seems to be a lost art. There's a certain of reptile. cooking python? Yeah. Is that a poisonous one? No. Um no. They no. constrict. Mm, yeah. Got it, yeah. got it, got it. Mm. Just somehow mm-hmm. more. Just another way to die. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um so how did you have any success hunting pigeons, Matt? So I, I I found some, and then at first I was too nervous because there's too many people around, and I was about to do it, and I saw this little kid walking up, <laughs> no. and I was like, I'm probably not going to ruin his day. And then so I found this perfect area that was kind of secluded, about like a giant flock of pigeons, and it, it took me a couple goes, and finally I was like, whatever, I'm going to do it. I'm going to kill this pigeon. What? And- <laughs> It is. It is pretty intense. I will say that there's going to be a lot of mad animal activists out there hearing this. <laughs> what? Yeah, Jasmine, so Jasmine. Jasmine is here. Jasmine is officially Hi. here, just in time. I so. walked in to hear about bird slaughter. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. to recap, well, Matt can recap for himself, but no, I think you got a good recap. Okay, great. So Let's Matt, see if I'm doing a good so, job explaining. Yes, yes. So first of all, so also we we don't have a ton of time to spend on this very interesting. <laughs> News flash from Matt's personal life, but um, if people wanted to hear more about this pigeon story, do the, is there a place they can go? It's going to be on my podcast uh, at night. I fly done with this this uh, person who's in prison who hunted pigeons as a kid, okay. and that's why I'm doing an extra piece on it. It's like, do people still hunt pigeons? Right, and and apparently pigeons that they're basically the equivalent of rats legally. 
They're mm-hmm. nuisance. You're allowed so, to kill them. Interesting. That's really interesting. Yeah. I was going to ask, like, can you just go around killing things <laughs> on the street? People get called on, like, um, there's always articles about people getting uh, the cops called on them for, like, usually it's, you know, someone mentally unstable, just like randomly killing pigeons. Yeah. I was not randomly killing them. I was doing it to prove a point about the meat industry. Ah, okay. That always <laughs> seems weird okay. because we are so disconnected to the fact that we kill animals. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And were you going to eat it? Yeah. I I would be concerned about diseases, though, Matt. So apparently pigeons are disgusting because their poop is disgusting. That's why they're a health hazard. What they eat is actually bird seed and uh, food that we throw away, like bread and stuff. Like a lot of people feed pigeons. That's why we have a lot of pigeons. Mm -hmm. Interesting. They don't seem like there's that much meat on them. Like, is it like a little guinea hen or... That's right. People, if if you go to a restaurant, you eat kind of like adolescent squab, squall, <laughs> squall. Okay. Squall. I, oh, oh, are you asking the vegetarian how to say it, Matt? Yeah. I don't know. I, I okay, don't know so I'll, I'll, I'll end the story because I know we have a lot to get through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get there and I have this big rock and I throw it once oh and God. I miss completely. And then I take, get it again. And these pigeons, they're so close. And I finally was like, you know what? I got to do it. You know, oh. it's uncomfortable. I don't, I don't even eat meat, but I was like. I must, we must be connected. I must show people that like, this is what <laughs> meat consumption Where is. Where was this in Brooklyn? Yeah, this, this was um, um, outside of a park, um, uh, uh, right off of Patchen. Oh my God. I, I, I throw it <laughs> and <laughs> it, it shatters. And I'm not sure if I hit any because there's a big pack and they all fly away. And I see one pigeon just kind of like, that. I must have nicked and he's just kind of sitting there oh, kind of side eyes, no. just waiting for me to finish the job. Oh. Oh, and, Jesus. And I didn't do it. Oh. Because I don't know. I felt like at that point I was trying to just, if I killed the pigeon, it would just be to like, yeah. I don't know. It was almost like a macho thing. I'm not sure if I'm proving my point about mm-hmm. um, the meat industry, yeah. but. Well, you, you were actually going to eat it though. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not I can, I mean, listen. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, yeah. Well, that's very interesting, Matt. Thank you for starting off the show with a bang. Um <laughs> That's really interesting. So yeah, tune into Matt. I, I mean, I, I would love to hear how you spin that into an entire, as an hour podcast, half hour episode. Um, th- This episode would be about 20, 25 minutes. Very interesting segment. Thank you, Matt. Yeah. Um, so we're going to dive back into our normally scheduled programming, which is uh, pre-researched information, uh, not personal, like not a anecdotal, non-anecdotal research. <laughs> You're really stories. just slamming my pigeons. No, I didn't. I just, I, we're gonna I didn't mean to I think that's it. enough slamming from you today, Matt. Okay. Like, on pigeons. What did I walk I mean, into? I mean, no slamming. Um, I'm processing that information, um, but I am excited for you. It sounds like a very interesting story. Um. But okay, so we're going to dive right into some local <laughs> news from Jasmine. Ready, girl? Yeah, so this is a story that's been brewing for over a year. So last year, um, I don't know if you all saw the video, but there was video footage of this incident. It was pretty disturbing. I didn't watch it personally. I knew what was in it, but I'm not a fan of watching such things. But last year, a woman named Jasmine Headley, who's 23 years old, she's a young mother. She has a... At the time, her child was one year old and still breastfeeding. She spent four days and four nights on Rikers Island for resisting arrest, but she was arrested for sitting down. So what happened was Miss Headley was visiting the HRA office. So I believe that's the Human Resource Administration office, and she was asking about child care benefits. 
And the workers told her that she had to go sit in a crowded waiting room. And she had been standing for a long time, like she had been standing with a young baby for several hours. So she went in the waiting room and she sat down on the floor. There were several security guards working at the office that got in her face like they physically confronted her and the police were called. There were two NYPD officers who tried one of whom tried to grab the baby and later pulled out a stun gun and she aimed the stun gun at people who were on looking at the office. So eventually the police officers took them, they took Jasmine away from her baby, like they took her baby from her and they dragged her out of the room and arrested her for resisting arrest. Um, The charges against her were dismissed by the Brooklyn DA, uh, Eric Gonzalez, and Ms. Headley testified later about what happened at a city council hearing in this February of this year. And she made a call for more social workers and not more security workers or security officers at places like that. Uh, And these are Jasmine's own words. She said, I was just a number, a ticket, a problem. And I know each day so many people have the same experience. It's not just the fact that I was arrested. It was the harsh way that I was treated by people who are supposed to help me. In my case, I was just sitting a peaceful act. So after she was arrested, the New York, the commissioner of New York Social Services said that all peace officers are going to have to wear body cameras on them. So I'm not sure if that's already been implemented or how helpful that might be. Both of the HRA security guards were fired, but neither one of the police officers that were involved were disciplined in any way. So the one piece of good news for Jasmine and her baby mm-hmm. is she was awarded a $625,000 settlement because she sued the city after what happened. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's one small bright spot for her, but it just seemed like so many systemic things happened, like crystallized in this one incident with mm-hmm. her. Um, I do. I totally remember that story. I remember how outrageous it sounded, just like the whole situation. Like, um, and yeah, I mean, even start to like it like start to finish the fact that it was um a place a welfare location where literally you're going to get help and you're being persecuted like if i i sit on the floor all the time right like imagine yeah. if they did something like that at like penn state like why can't you sit on the floor yeah right? i mean like, or they they do already from what i understand that kind of targeting al- already does happen to some people in spaces um like penn station right but yeah like it, it reminded me of there's this book that I'm reading right now by someone named Sarah Schulman. I'm not done with it, but it's called Conflict is Not Abuse. Mm. And she has a whole section of the book where she talks about ways that people will use law enforcement as like their way to get their way. Like mm-hmm. there's not no one is an actual danger. But as soon as you start like that in motion, like you don't really know what might happen next. Right. So it was really, you know, shocking because, you know, it's disturbing to have, you know, a breastfeeding like infant like snatched away from you because you're sitting down and people are frustrated with you. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you're dragged away, sent to Rikers to a literal island for several days. You know, what if she had had a job like Mm -hmm. I couldn't be away from my work for four days Mm -hmm. and I'm already struggling. So Mm -hmm. you don't know what might happen to you when you're in custody and places like that. So. And it's it's so the the charges for resisting arrest, being charged with that when you're being arrested for something 
that's so i mean you're being arrested for something that's not illegal you're sitting down yeah so why shouldn't you be able to resist that what are you supposed to do in that situation say oh you're right you should arrest me for sitting down right now i mean and you know not to get too bleak but yes like there are situations that could have been much more dangerous for her if she had gotten pulled over by a a, a night you know like by alone there were no onlookers like a lot more a lot scarier things happen to people who you know, quote, like, resist arrest when mm-hmm. there isn't a good reason to be arrested. Yeah. I wonder what um, and either of you either can you use either for only two people, maybe three. Oh. I, I would say any one of mm. if it's multiple, but either or for two things. So mm. any one of either either or of you, <laughs> you're all the corporeal beings behind the microphones in this room. Do you have any thoughts about this trend about using body cameras as if it's some sort of solution um, like like, oh, instead of just trusting people, um, we'll just make it easier for them to have even better proof to back up their claims of like uh, harassment or abuse of power. Well, th- I think there's already been cases of cops not having them on, yeah. like turning yeah. them off mm-hmm. at certain moments or it also a lot of it boils down to people see what they want to see like two people can look at the same footage and maybe to us in this room we would look at this and be like oh this is horrible it's dehumanizing it's disgusting and there's people that will watch the exact same thing and have no empathy for the mother at all Mm -hmm. so I think in this case it worked in her favor that the powers that be in her situation took her side but I don't think it's like a be all end all because it's still subjective how people interpret it. Yeah, I think that's true. I, I also think that um, it, go, it goes a long way. I think the modern era of everyone having a cell phone that can take footage has done a huge amount yeah. to increase, um, if not uh, repercussions for people who act beyond due force, but um, for public awareness that such things happen. Everything from like Eric Garner, like the fact that people have cameras at the ready. I mean, you know, Rodney King was a very early example and a very rare one that there was even footage of what happened. And today it, it's it, it's upsetting, but it's like we're I think as a society are much more aware of how endemic all this stuff is because there's footage. And while police having body cameras, yes, they there are ways to get around that. You know, if, if someone is someone is going to do harm and want to get away with it, someone's going to find a way to you know, get around it. But um, it's it's a step, I think. Mm. I just think it's so depressing that um, that level of skepticism mm-hmm. and distrust uh, is is we're, we're even at the we've been at that point for so long where it's just like kind of unquestionable. It's like, well, the problem is isn't like abuse or, or whatever. It's like, yeah. 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 And also that then the because then it, you should be correcting the behavior of the cops, not figuring out a way to make the victims believable. And then on top of that, the actual justice system is structured to protect cops in these situations right. where it's really hard to get an indictment. And like, where else in society do we use this tact of, of have, having to have um it, uh, like this like godlike evidence of like visual and audio confirmation like that's not that's not how we operate in society but we have this one um 
we have this one system of uh, of policing mm-hmm. that just seems to have gotten so out of hand that we've invented a new tactic that we don't use in any other forms of conflict re- resolution. Yeah. It's pretty intense stuff. Um, any last thoughts, guys? Thank you, Jasmine. Yeah, and congratulations to Jasmine with yes. a Z and an E. This is how it was spelled on my Starbucks cup, but it's not how I spell my name. But more power to you. I hope that you yeah. know this is the beginning of a new chapter in her life, and that was taken from the Independent.co.uk. It was an article that they published. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Um, alrighty, and next up, we actually have a, a little mini uh, special segment from Matt. Yes, uh, this is an incredible Brooklyn documentary podcast called School Colors. What is it about? Quote, Bedford Stuyvesant is one of the largest and most iconic historically black communities in the United States. Schools in Bed-Stuy used, used to be so overcrowded that students went to school in shifts. Now they're half empty. Why? End quote. This is put out by the Brooklyn Movement Center in Brooklyn Deep. Here is an excerpt from the very first episode. I think it's a 10 run of um, telling the story of school segregation in Brooklyn. At the corner of Marcus Garvey and Lafayette, right across the street from the place where I do my laundry, there's a public elementary school called PS25. The New York City Department of Education says that PS25's four-story brick building has room for almost 1,000 students. Last year, there were just 82 So on a cold Monday night in February 2018, I went to PS25 for a public hearing. There might have been 30 people there scattered around an auditorium that seats two to 300. Before the hearing began, a few kids with handwritten signs just about as tall as they were started marching up and down the aisles. The NYC DOE is proposing the closure of PS25 based on its persistently low enrollment and lack of demand from students and families in the neighborhood. Consequently, the DOE is proposing that PS25 close at the end of the school year. This school is just a, it's small to them. It's big to us, but it's small to everyone else. There's only a few children in the school, so they don't think it's as serious. So just, no, just close down the school. There's only a, a couple of um, children in the school, but... You know, we see the same people over and over. You know, you just grow accustomed to it. They know what your kids need. They know what they lack. It's just, it'll be sad to close it. What did you think of this meeting tonight? I think it's, it's not going to make a difference, what we, what we say. It's, their mind is made, and whatever happens, it don't matter what we think. PS25 is part of Community School District 16, which covers about half of Bed-Stuy. District 16 has a higher percentage of black teachers than any other district in the city. The superintendent is black. Almost all of the principals are black. Most of the schools are named after black heroes. And like PS25, almost every school in the district is hemorrhaging kids. But just three blocks down Marcus Garvey Boulevard, I found a very different scene. Another public school, also in District 16, that appeared to be in high demand. Brighter Choice Community School. A couple of months after that hearing at PS25, I went to Brighter Choice for an open house. The gym was alive with music and games, laughing children and wide-eyed parents. Most of the parents were black. In fact, I knew quite a few of them already, but there were a handful of white parents as well. 
My name is Sarah Johansson, and I'm here with my husband, Rogan, and my son, Praben. And we are here because we applied to this school for next year, so hopefully he'll get in in September. Sarah is originally from Denmark. And it's always been really important to us that he went to a place that was close to where we live, and that was certainly in the district that we live in. We don't want to send him somewhere else. And plus, you know, the school is great, so we're just hoping that he gets in here. I mean, it's really good that I, I'm really proud that the school is very popular. I'm really proud that people are looking and vying for spots. Like, people are literally vying to get their kids in here. And that's amazing. Sienne um, Everett was the PTA secretary of Brighter Choice at the time. And she was excited that other parents were excited about the school, with some reservations. I, I really hope people who are vying for the school, who are coming and wanting their children to be here, I'm really hoping they're coming with the notion of wanting to be a part of a community. So why would parents be throwing elbows to enroll their children at Brighter Choice? when the schools all around them are desperate for students? And if Brighter Choice is doing so well, what is Sian Everett so worried about? You know, change is good, but we, we want people to come in. You fell in love with the school for a reason. Come and, and just meld into that reason. Come and be a part of the reason. We don't need, we don't need the change makers right now. <laughs> You're listening to School Colors, a podcast from Brooklyn Deep about how race, class, and power shape American cities and schools. My name is Mark Winston Griffith. I'm an organizer, a journalist, and a public school parent. I was born in central Brooklyn, and I've been working here for 35 years. My name is Max Friedman. I'm a teacher, an audio producer, and a gentrifier. Together, we've been to dozens of public meetings and interviewed more than 60 people. Parents, teachers, and administrators. Politicians, historians, and activists. My landlord. My uncle. Trying to figure out what's going on here and what it means. We started with what seemed like a pretty straightforward question. Why is enrollment going down in District 16? But nothing here is straightforward. You could blame it on the quality of the schools themselves. I have a big issue with people constantly saying District 16 schools suck. They suck. They suck. No, they don't. You could blame it on the competition from well-funded charter schools. Some parents like shiny things. And if you can show them something shiny, that's the way they're going to go. You could blame it on gentrification. Bed-Stuy is changing, and a lot of the people moving in either don't have kids like me or send their kids elsewhere. The thought of even considering a public school in this neighborhood, in our neighborhood, was unheard of. You know, no one would ever think about doing anything like that. Ironically, if more parents like Sarah Johansson are convinced to choose their local school, gentrification might actually resurrect the district. Which would also contribute to the racial and economic integration of at least one corner of New York City's deeply segregated school system. But in Bedford-Stuyvesant, one of the most iconic, historically black neighborhoods in the United States, integration riding on the coattails of gentrification might be a tough sell. Some see it as a part of an erasure of black and low-income people. I think that every time minorities have something good, it gets taken away from us, and I'd like to be able to hold on to something. District 16 is at a tipping point. And what's at stake is a lot more than lines on a map. It's the power to control not only how and what children learn, but what kind of city we're going to live in and who that city is going to serve. And the biggest, oldest questions we have as a country about power have been tested and worked out right here in the schools of Central Brooklyn for as long as there have been black children here. And that's a long-ass time. The plan for community control was... We knew that black people were capable of running schools. They will burn the city down. It was a beautiful thing that got destroyed. The government was hostile. The pressure that we went through as children killed 
many of us. This is what happens when you don't have people who you're trying to serve as a part of the solution. They want us to be like puppets with our heads down when they say to do stuff, but we're not having it. What am I doing? Why am I leaving my kids at home to go and fight for something that the parents from that school didn't even come out to say yay or nay? You're not born and raised here. You're not do or die. You just got here. I am white, but I am no dummy. Who the f*** do you think you are? I am a pariah. What's happening in District 16 is happening across New York City. And what's happening in New York City is happening in cities across the country. We've got eight episodes to tell you all about it. Welcome to School Colors. Well, hey, uh, thank you so much, Matt. Yes, that was not <laughs> us. That was uh, School Colors, a podcast put yeah. out by some uh, Brooklynites. Awesome. Awesome, awesome. So we're going to take a um, a quick little musical break just to hit refresh. And when we're back, we're going to be we're going to have some more semi original content because it's us kind of regurgitating the news anyway. But anyway, <laughs> we'll be back shortly. Here's some music. Welcome back. That was Ezra Furman's cover of Unbelievers, originally by Vampire Weekend. Uh, pretty recent song-ish. Teresa has me try and pick recent music, and I always struggle with that because I listen to stuff that's weird and old. Anyway, uh, we are back. We're going to dive into some national news. You're listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. Uh, come at us, Zoe. Hi. Yeah, so... This story is called South Carolina Gets the Green Light to Impose Medicaid Work Requirements. And I wanted to talk about it because last week we had a story uh, about the Trump administration formalizing work requirements for food stamp recipients. So I wanted to follow that up with this story from NPR about states attempting to impose the same type of work requirements for Medicaid coverage. And I'm from South Carolina, so this story is kind of near to my heart. Mm-hmm. Um, so this past Thursday, South Carolina received approval from the Trump administration to impose Medicaid work requirements, a move that is likely to trigger a challenge from a federal court. Under the new rules, most adults who qualify for Medicaid coverage will be required to prove they work at least 80 hours a month or are doing other activities like volunteering or job hunting. 
In a statement, South Carolina Governor Henry McMaster wrote that in this economy, there is no excuse for the able-bodied to not be working. The Trump administration has made it a priority to allow states to attach work requirements to Medicaid benefits, which has not been the case under previous administrations. However, many health analysts say most adults who get covered for Medicaid are already working. Nearly a dozen states have already tried to implement Medicaid work requirements, but South Carolina is one of the only few that hasn't expanded Medicaid eligibility under the Affordable Care Act. So what that means is that the new rules will primarily impact low-income parents, since most adults without children don't even qualify for Medicaid coverage in South Carolina. Moreover, according to experts, the state's new work requirements will disproportionately impact minority groups, women, and people who live in rural areas. In Arkansas, the only state to actually implement the rules, more than 18,000 people lost coverage before a judge blocked the program in March, and less than 1% of people impacted by the work requirements in Arkansas ultimately got a job, but about a quarter ended up losing their health coverage. Research has shown that when people lost coverage, it wasn't because they weren't working or trying to skirt the requirements. There's actually good data indicating that tens of thousands of people were kicked off of Medicaid, not because they were ineligible, but because they had trouble actually following through on the reporting requirements. So dealing with all the red tape, with websites, logging their hours, just trying to figure out all the bureaucratic things. So eight other states have requested approval from the Trump administration to implement work requirements. Meanwhile, groups in South Carolina opposed to the new rules say they're weighing legal options, which indicates that South Carolina may join Arkansas, Kentucky, and New Hampshire defending Medicaid work requirements in court. Dang. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. Dang. Yeah. And uh, Medicaid, too. So Medicaid, like... We, we talked a lot about the food stamps and how food stamps are just meant to help people survive and stay healthy. And this idea of tying tying your I mean, in a country where we don't have universal health care, right. I guess it, maybe it's not so surprising. But this idea that, you know, we just we as a society seem to not care just about keeping a yeah. large swath of the population healthy is kind of wild. Yeah. And we have this this data that shows this doesn't even work. Mm -hmm. You know, so it just feels punitive and it just feels like, you know, um, the state saying, well, we don't like poor people. We don't like unemployed people. And we're going to punish you for not being able to work. Mm -hmm. um, and, it, you know, it also it's it's that whole appealing to a certain base and a certain yeah. misinformed uh, idea of what it looks like to not have a job or not have a full-time job or like, you know, like, oh, you're, or who's on Medicaid, right? right. It's like the stereotype about, well, you know, if you can't afford your own health insurance or get it through your job, you're probably not working. You're probably just sitting at home lazy or whatever. Right. And it's, it appeals to a base who votes based out of anger or fear that they're, you know, spending taxes, you know what I mean? Like yes. their taxes are getting taken to pay for this and all this stuff and just, it's very upsetting. <laughs> it is. Yeah, it really, it does feed into this idea that only certain people deserve to just be alive. Mm -hmm. You know, like the, the whole idea that you have to be working in order to have the right to get medical treatment is, it's, it's horrible. 
you yeah. know, and like it doesn't really I, I'm not sure like exactly how rural um, places in South Carolina are, but I imagine it can be difficult yeah. if you're someone that lives very far away. Like how easy is it going to be for you to go find an opportunity to volunteer mm-hmm. or just, you know, be applying to a different job like every day? How many jobs are there? You know, like what if you're already sick and it's hard for you to like qualify for some of these jobs? Like it's just. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it doesn't. It seems like the actual goal. Well, I'm not going to say it seems it is. The goal is very different from what I think the stated goal is, because like you mentioned um, in your recap, we already see that it's not working to get people to find work. You're just taking health care from people who need it. Right. Yeah. So. And when we look at it in conjunction with the removal of food stamp availability, you know, you're right. getting rid of preventative health care. Like, you know, if you have enough healthy food, you have enough food, period, you might not need the doctors often. We're getting rid of that availability. We're getting right. rid of when you're actually sick. And then, you know, also the, you know, the kicker getting, you know, attacking Planned Parenthood, which provides affordable health care for people without insurance. Um, you know, it's and they're hard to get to also if you're in a rural area you know there's very few options if you don't have a lot of enough money to yeah, right. and then yeah. attacking people's ability to make the full range of reproductive choices mm, for themselves yeah. include up to and including abortion it's like okay you don't give a damn about making sure these people are able to take care of any children that they have once mm-hmm. they're basically forced to bring them in like whether it's through having inade- inadequate sexual education mm-hmm taking away their ability to access reliable reproductive care. It's just this massive like death machine. Yeah. (laughs) Like pushing people towards like just being in misery, like just for the sake of doing it. And I, it's getting bleaker and bleaker Mm -hmm. every day. Just false information left and right. You know, even if we look at it on a more, and a maybe probably overly generous point of view that, you know, it's not, it's not actively trying to attack people. It's just like, well, they think this and this and they, it's like a lack of empathy, but it's also a total lack of information about, you know, how. So if you don't want people getting abortions, but you also don't want them having, you know, adequate sex education, like where like, you know what I mean? Like, what yeah. is your plan? Yeah. Right. <laughs> Where, what do you want? You know, I mean, I guess the plan is to control what yeah. people do. You know, it's yeah. because you're trying to enforce like your morality on other people or like your view that, well, if you're not working, then mm-hmm. fuck you if you can't afford like your insulin or whatever. Or like yeah. if you're not going to live your life the way I think that you should sexually, then you shouldn't have access to these things to keep yourself healthy. Mm-hmm. So it has a. Uh, it, it, it's a very emotional and ideal ideological system of logic to bring up things like work requirements mm-hmm. and because you don't really um, legislate like that for other things. Like if you need something, we should provide that thing and not have this, this weird um, kind of roundabout way of, of justifying that in, in your own personal lives. What do you think um, your blind spots are? Mm. Uh, is, is there something because it comes from this uh, a conservative idea that hard work and self ownership mm. is is what people need, and if you do that, it will make all of society better. And if you don't enforce that, society will be lazier or whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, in which ways do you think your own personal beliefs govern how you think um, uh, certain things would work? Like uh, for me, it might be like a distrust of like. Um, ultra free market capitalism. Like, yeah. I think I have some like belief about like 
there's a certain amount of regulation we need because there's like a certain like evilness to like, mm-hmm. the people with money. And that's not necessarily true. No, but history but. has shown that trickle down economics don't work. Um, no, that's <laughs> interesting. Now, that's a really interesting and very deep question. Matt. The blind spots. Yeah. We all have them. I mean, I, mistakes. yeah, I mean, I guess for myself, I think I probably, you know, as much as I, I do like to try and remind myself, like even in, during this conversation, right, it's I try not to villainize swaths of people. I'm like, OK, best case scenario, just a lack of empathy for people who aren't like you. I think for me, probably my blind spot is probably, though, like looking at how <laughs> maybe Mitch McConnell operates in the Senate or whatever. And just like, I fucking hate that guy. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? And it's just like, OK, like he's probably like, who votes for this guy? And it's just like probably something related to that where it's like, I guess whatever he's saying appeals to the people who feel like they need something from the world they're not getting from other options. But it's just like, come on. Like, yeah, that's probably mine. I think a big one for me is I've grown up in a series of um, bubbles. Mm. So you know, I'm from South Carolina, which is overall a very conservative state, but Charleston is, you know, Charleston went blue mm-hmm. in the 2016 election. That's where I'm from. Um, my family's very liberal. I went to, you know, liberal college. Then I moved to New York City. And sometimes it's easy to forget that the people I surround myself with are not representative of how the majority of people in our country might think, how they operate. Um, I've never lived in a very rural area, even though rural areas are the predominant communities in South Carolina and in much of the deep South. Um, So, you know, I drive through them, but do I interact with them? No. So I think inherently I lack a certain understanding about how people may think who don't live in places like Brooklyn. <laughs> so, yeah. 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 I would say I'm someone who, as I've gotten older and like lived through different things, like I do, I, I wouldn't use the term villainized, but like, I really don't um, have any desire to go out of my way mm-hmm. to try to understand like, the motivations and the machinations like behind some of these, these decisions that are literally killing people. Mm -hmm. Um, My view is like, we have limited time on this earth, like we each do. So if you know, like what the consequences of a lot of these actions are, like I'm not personally like inclined at all to be like, Oh, I can kind of understand. Mm -hmm. Like it's been however many generations, like hundreds of years, like I don't, see it as like oh these individuals they just don't understand like what the impacts of these actions are like i feel like you've had enough evidence Mm. to see that so it's just not really it's not in my wheelhouse (laughs) i think that's really interesting i think that's uh also a very good point like if you have more information than someone you don't agree with like do you have to see it from their point of view um thank you for that interesting point matt i'm gonna unless someone has something they really want to add i'm gonna i'm gonna steamroll forward i'm gonna in fact steamroll a little bit over a story i researched myself just so we can get to some more world news some more interesting stuff um so i'm gonna consider this little this little up as like an update on the border wall um so in case you were wondering where we were with the border wall because i feel like uh, with everything with impeachment i haven't heard as much about it in a long long time but um so Earlier this week, a federal judge in Texas issued an injunction blocking about three quarters of the funding 
the Trump administration had procured for the building of a wall along the southern border of the United States. Uh, Congress had limited funds for the Department of Homeland Security to build the border wall to $1.375 billion. Uh, So they had said that's the max you can have. But in February, um, after that limit was set, uh, Trump issued an emergency proclamation in order to secure an additional $3.6 billion. Yeah. The emergency money he tapped into came from a military construction budget only to be used in a case of a national emergency. So the plaintiffs in the case that this judge was ruling on uh, were the county of El Paso in Texas and the Border Network for Human Rights, which is an advocacy organization. And they argued that the emergency declaration falsely characterized the border region as dangerous, undermining business and tourism. Um, mm. And that's a quote that I got all of this research from The New York Times. Um, the, and so the Trump administ- administration had argued that the president um, had the ability to rearrange additional existing funds by declaring a national emergency, despite the congressional limit in place. But Judge David Briones, I think that's how it's pronounced, in El Paso disagreed, blocking the use of that additional funding. Um, so when I first saw this, the headlight, I was like, oh, the board, the wall's over. We're not getting the wall. And of course, like it's more, it's not. Yeah. I wish. Um, but so the status on the wall up until this point, um, as of earlier this week, there have been about 86 miles of wall built by the Trump administration, but those were all in places where there was an existing but damaged wall or fencing. Uh, and last month marked the start of the building of new wall in places where they had not been, uh, had not been previously a barrier. It's also from the New York Times. Um, so some uh, some fun little hot tidbits also I found just to spice up the story, all news related, also from the New York Times. Um, so a, there was a, there were a group of a groups of citizens privately crowdfunding um, border wall construction. If maybe if they order they owned land, private land along the wall and they wanted to help the president build this wall. Um, so a judge temporarily blocked one of those private groups, uh, maybe the main one. I have to research more how many groups are doing that. But um, from building part of the wall with crowdfunded resources due to environmental concerns, namely butterfly concerns brought forth by the National Butterfly Center. Oh, it's very cute. So, yeah, they won a temporary hold. And I think it's going to continue going through the legal system. Um, It's a lot of a lot of hot rhetoric from both sides on that one. I'll tell you (laughs) if you want to look that story up. I'm glad the butterflies are rising. I know. Oh, yeah. I just picture like people and just like, hmm. yeah. yeah. Butterfly Is that in the way of like where the monarchs, butterflies um, migrate? Because yes. don't they come like yes. from uh-huh. Mexico? Like they go back and forth. That is true. Yeah. I was, I, I didn't get a specific name of a butterfly, but there's a, even beyond butterflies, there's a lot, a lot of environmental groups really anxious about how this is going to affect migration patterns of a ton of animal species. Mm-hmm. It might fuck us up for bad, for bad. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and then another fun little update is that the Office of the Inspector General for the Department of Defense is investigating whether there was, quote, inappropriate influence, end quote, when a $400 million contract was awarded to a North Dakota construction company that Trump pushed for. Hmm. Yeah, that is the story of Trump's mm-hmm. business career, yeah. inappropriate influence. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, yeah. All right, guys. Um, that was my update on the border wall. Uh, thank you for listening to that. We also have another update. <laughs> So we we're going to try out a kind of a week, new weekly update segment on what's going on with either the impeachment or election 2020. Um, so Teresa did some research on this, but we're going to have Zoe present that. Yeah. yeah. So. Teresa brings us this information. Uh, formal impeachment charges were approved by the Democrat 
Democratic Party-controlled House Judiciary Committee on Friday, December 13th, following weeks of debate. Trump is now facing two charges of impeachment, abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. Democrats believe these two charges are the easiest to prove and backed up by the largest body of evidence. So what did Trump do? Trump is accused of pressuring Ukraine to dig up damaging information on one of his main Democratic challengers for the presidency in 2020, Joe Biden, and his son, Hunter, who worked for a Ukrainian company when Biden was U.S. vice president. The president is accused of bargaining with Ukraine by withholding $400 million of military aid that had already been allocated by Congress and a White House meeting for Ukraine's president. Mr. Trump is also accused of obstructing Congress by refusing to cooperate with the congressional inquiry. Up to this point, the, U- the White House has no intention to imply. Comply? Comply. I think she probably meant comply. <laughs> um, so how does impeachment work? It happens in two stages. Proceedings must first be started by the House of Representatives, A vote to impeach only needs a simple majority to pass. And if it does pass, then the process then moves to the Senate where a trial is held. The Senate is currently controlled by the Republican Party, so conviction is considered unlikely in Trump's case. There is a debate about whether the Constitution requires a Senate trial. However, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has publicly stated that he will allow one to proceed. During the trial, House members act as the prosecutors, the senators as jurors, and the Chief Justice of the United States presides. Historically, the president has been allowed to have defense lawyers call witnesses and request documents. The Judiciary Panel will use the report from the impeachment inquiry launched this week to consider if formal charges could form the basis of a full House impeachment vote by the end of December. No president has ever been removed as a a direct result of impeachment. Richard Nixon resigned before he could be removed. Andrew Johnson and Bill Clinton were impeached by the White House or impeached by the House, but not convicted by the Senate. And if you are surprised to hear we had a president named Andrew Johnson, as I was, <laughs> he's the 17th president of the United States. And he was impeached for removing his war secretary uh, without permission from Congress, I believe. Uh- Interesting. I actually did a history report on Andrew Johnson in fourth grade. So I'm a (laughs) little bit of an expert. Yeah. Um, yeah. So he, yeah, he was the uh, VP under Lincoln. So he got bumped up when the old, uh, the old situation went down at the Ford theater. Wait, I'm so curious about your fourth grade report. I know. Cause like, I don't know why I think I picked him. I don't know why. But like, so, so Lincoln gets killed. Um, he had, he had strategically (laughs) had Johnson as a vice president to, uh, to kind of put at ease, like other racists in Mm, the government. He was a Democrat, right. From the yeah. South, correct. And like an ultra racist that really fucked up Reconstruction and w- stopped a mm-hmm. lot of voting yeah. uh, rights for Black people and uh, and he was. Just, I, I got to say, my, my I was I was eight years old and this was 1999. That's why I'm so, so curious. So, like, how did yeah, you understand? It was that? much less politicized. Like what the whatever I was able to get my hands on was not hot button like that. Like I remember, I remember, I remember facts more than. Like and facts that couldn't be skewed, really like, it, you know, not skewed, but like not um, like today, like looking at him from that lens makes total sense. Right. But like back then, I remember, yeah, learning about 
reconstruction, I guess. Um, the impeachment, obviously. Obviously. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. So you weren't like an extra, like, hilariously, like, woke little kid? I just, wish, like... Matt, that I could say I was. <laughs> I, yeah, very little, inf- very limited information. I also grew up in a very predominantly white town. Um, I think there, I don't know if I'd, we, I, there was very few black kids in my school at the time. And I didn't learn till high school what de facto segregation was. And I was like, oh, oh no. That, yeah. Redlining, blah, blah, blah. Anyway. Let's, uh, thank you so much, Zoe, for presenting sure. that uh, information from Teresa. Thank you for researching and suggesting that new segment, Teresa. Uh, we're excited to have you back in the, the future to continue presenting. I um, Let's keep moving. I'm going to save a song break. Just We'll save that song I had planned for the end just so we get through more talking because I think we have some more very interesting things to get through in the next few minutes. Um, so we have a, a world news story uh, researched by Sarah that Jasmine's going to present. Okay, so uh, Sarah Weck, who couldn't join us this week, she wrote a little bit about um, Boris Johnson and the Conservative Party winning a parliament majority this past week. Um, She got the information from a New York Times article and also from a Washington Post article. So on Thursday, Conservative Party leader Boris Johnson, he's another one with terrible hair and even worse (laughs) politics, won a majority vote, which tips the scale in favor of a strong exit from the EU in January. The country is now certain to head towards the biggest transition it has seen this century. Calls for Labor Party leader Jeremy Corbyn's resignation have followed Johnson's win, although he has not yet stepped down. Get Brexit Done dominated the election, which has also catalyzed the Scottish National Party to begin to vote on independence for Scotland. So I remember like when the original Brexit vote happened, Scotland largely voted against Brexit. But mm-hmm. being that they're still a part of the United Kingdom, like they're still affected regardless of how they voted um, and they wish to stay in the EU. Britain and the EU have agreed that Brexit will occur around January 31st, although Johnson's government is pushing to get it done before Christmas. This election outcome is not surprising, but certainly thought provoking and parallel. These are Sarah's thoughts. Mm -hmm. This election outcome is not surprising, but certainly thought-provoking in parallel with the impeachment hearings. And she's wondering what everyone thinks about these new developments and what we can expect to see in the coming month ahead for Britain. Well, (laughs) I I knew there was an election coming up. I actually, I guess I haven't been as up on the... I just, I didn't know... I didn't expect it to be a landslide. I yeah. I was actually really disappointed. I mean, I've obviously I've been spending more time focusing on local, you know, our our situation here on this side of the Atlantic. But um, yeah, I was I saw the the my, I got my New York Times you know little update on my phone and like my heart sank and my I felt <laughs> a little sick and it was like many flashback to election twenty sixteen like physi- physiolo- physiologically. Uh, yeah, yeah I, real bummer. I, I was I was very surprised too because it's been such. <laughs> Uh, such a spectacular failure ever since uh, Boris Johnson mm-hmm. became prime minister and Theresa May had such a hard time. And it's just it seems there's so much evidence that like, oh, we don't actually want Brexit because we're learning what it actually is. And everybody, mm-hmm. nobody can decide on the best way to do a shitty thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I yeah, I think that's why I also thought maybe it's just not maybe like if they revote, it's just not going to happen. But I don't know. Yeah, as far as what's ahead, I know one of the big worries is the NHS because mm-hmm. up until now, like Britain has had a pretty good universal health care system. As far like there was a video I watched recently where 
it was like a man on the street thing where they were asking British citizens to guess how much certain things cost in the u.s mm-hmm. so it's like well how much do you think it costs to hold your baby after you give birth <laughs> they're like what you have to yeah. pay for that yeah. and you know they just had no concept of what it's like to have to pay out of your own pocket and they, i know that one of the things that they've been the conservative party has been moving towards is more privatization of medical care which i'm sure is very scary yeah for a lot of people um across the pond <laughs> you know not yeah. to mention like with the original Brexit vote, there was a huge uptick in, you know, immigrants, people who were visible minorities mm-hmm. just being attacked, like, out of spite. Yeah. So I'm hoping that there's not a similar uptick right now with these election results, but, you know, I'm not particularly optimistic. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Thank you to everyone involved with that story, Sarah and Jasmine. And uh, our next world story is also written uh, I forget what the Latin word is for someone who's not here. <laughs> I was going to try and throw that out. In absence. In absence, yeah. Yes, Jasmine. Uh, thank you. Um, by Teresa and Matt will present that now. Mm-hmm. Uh, looks like the reporting for this is from good old Reuters. A UN climate summit in Madrid closed out last Sunday after many talks between countries that exposed deep divides as to how to ambi- how. A- Ambitious each nation should be in its individual plan to fight climate change. The push for a strengthening of voluntary carbon cutting plans was led by small islands and the least developed states along with the European Union. China and India, the world's number one and number four emitters, had made it clear they see no need to improve on the current on their current emissions reduction plans, which run to 2030. Instead, they chose to emphasize the historical responsibility of rich nations to lead the way and provide financing to poor countries. The Madrid talks became consumed in disputes over the rules that should govern international carbon trading, favored by wealthier countries to reduce the cost of cutting emissions. Brazil and Australia were among the main holdouts. The summit deferred big decisions on carbon markets or later. The gathering had been due to end at the two-week mark on Friday, but ran on for two extra days and exposed a myriad of confusion regarding how to enact humanity's plan to avert global warming disaster. In, in reading this, um, this wonderfully summarized article, it, it really makes it, um, and perhaps also because we just got done talking about Brexit, and this kind of this rise of political uh, national isolationism is it like? Do you think that there is a? It's a coincidence that one of the the largest threat that absolutely requires one hundred percent cooperation from every mm-hmm. country. Like, you think it's a coincidence that that's happening at the same time <laughs> that countries right. that are doing okay or better than okay are like, you know what? Let's stick to ourselves. Mm-hmm. We don't want to mm-hmm. share in this responsibility. This is a terrible combination. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's really upsetting. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I just uh, hold out hope that Greta Thunberg saves the day, doing what I can. But like, I like I do lose sleep over this stuff sometimes when I'm not, you know, having an anxiety attack over something stupid in my apartment. I like <laughs> let I, you know, my fear that the heater is going to explode or something. Yeah. I like lose sleep over this like real issue. So I talked to a guy who uh, knows Greta Thunberg's mother. Oh, he wrote songs for her. Cool. Yes, he's a Swedish cyber philosopher and judge on <laughs> Sweden's Got Talent. Cool. Wow. 
Wow. <laughs> yep. He'll, he'll be I didn't on, know there was such a thing. It's yeah, it's kind of cute. They do more pranks. Um, mm, okay. It's like a yeah, but it's what you would imagine. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe we're doomed. Maybe we're not. But I guess you just got to keep hoping. Um, I uh, any other thoughts on that, guys? Um, I'm gonna do two things. I'm gonna do a our little on air read. So you've been listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. Uh, so we are coming up on the fifth anniversary of Radio Free Brooklyn, in fact, and we have a drive to five fundraising campaign underway. Uh, we need to raise $25,000 so we can continue bringing you commercial free independent radio for another five years. Because we think money, raising money should be fun. Each month we'll be bringing listeners fun challenges with some great prizes. The first is a trivia quiz to find out just how well you know RFB. The top five scorers will win a limited edition five-year anniversary RFB t-shirt. And they're very cool. I might just buy one for myself anyway. I saw them online. Um, yeah, you can make donations online also at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. Um, there's also the mobile app you can download. Uh, you can listen to old episodes of our show on our uh, website, on our like RadioFreeBrooklyn.org backslash, I think, objection to the rule. I'm working on uploading ones from last month. It's going to happen soon. Um, but yeah, cool. And then I'm going to close the show out with a, a little bit of a, a good news story to maybe like bring us back up a little a teeny bit. So um, a high school in Arizona installed a laundry room to, so students can have clean clothes. Uh, when the principal, uh, when principal John Anderson of Maya High School in Phoenix, Arizona, realized the students were skipping school because they were embarrassed to wear dirty clothes, he worked to add a laundry room for the students to use. He explains that the school is, quote, an alternative high school that serves a population that struggled in other school settings. Over 30% of our students are categorized as homeless. They may have slept in a park or slept on a friend's floor or couch on a nightly basis, end quote. Uh, there was a tight budget to work with, but big names like the Arizona Diamondbacks and the Fiesta Bowl donated all the requisite funding. Um yeah, so that's a cute little story. I mean, why 30% of the student bodily body is homeless is another issue for another day. <laughs> but uh, small positive solutions can go a long way to helping out a vulnerable population. So maybe, you know, there are people out there trying to trying to do what they can. Um, well, thank you so much, guys. My name's oh, Emily. Uh, everyone here, take a bow, verbal bow, yes, I guess. Yes, Matthew here. Thanks for listening. <laughs> it's Jasmine. Thanks for listening. Zoe, keep it locked. Radio Free Brooklyn. <laughs> yeah, uh, we'll be back next week at one p.m. with uh, some more or some more news. I think I might. We're gonna be playing with the format. I might be the only one here next week. But um, cool guys, thank you. We're gonna close out the show with uh, "Young Americans" by David Bowie. Just like a minute of it. All right, bye, bye. Just behind the bridge, he lays her down. He frowns. Gee, my life's a funny 